Welcome to the Raise Private Money Legally Podcast with your host, Corporate Securities Attorney Kim Lisa Taylor. Kim is a nationally recognized attorney, speaker, and the author of two number one Amazon best-selling books, the latest of which is How to Raise Capital for Real Estate Legally. Kim and her firm, Syndication Attorneys, PLLC, have been responsible for over $2.75 billion in securities offerings. The purpose of this podcast is to introduce you to topics and services you need as your real estate syndication business grows. Whether you're a new syndicator or a seasoned fund manager, this podcast is for you. Information discussed during this free podcast is of a general, educational nature and should not be construed as legal or tax advice. All right. So I'm just going to repeat that little intro. This is Kim Lisa Taylor with syndicationattorneys.com. We want to thank everybody for joining our free monthly teleconference. Uh, today's call is being recorded on May 18th, 2017. And our topic for the day is joint ventures or securities. What's the difference? So I think this is going to be really important for all of our listeners to understand. Uh, some of you, it would make sense for you to do securities and some of you it won't and uh, you should be you should be selling uh, passive investment interests in the form of securities so we're going to just tell you what the difference is between joint ventures what's the difference between securities how you can stay out of trouble if you're doing joint ventures and uh, what kind of trouble you can get in if you do it wrong um, but uh, all right so what is it that that joint ventures and securities apart. Well, before we can actually cover that, we have to talk about what is a security. So the Securities Act of 1933 is where the first definition of a security came from. And in that Securities Act of 1933, which you can look up on the internet, you'll see that there's a whole big section and it takes up about a half a page that just defines all the different terms that the SEC considers to be securities. Most state regulatory agencies have adopted a very similar set of terms. So if you look in any state securities laws, you'll find almost an identical list. And if you'll notice in the Securities Act of 1933 list of definitions, the very first thing is a note. So everybody who's out there selling promissory notes and borrowing money from people over and over again, thinking that they're not selling securities, you're wrong. Okay. And The second thing that pertains to people who are dealing with real estate are called investment contracts. So those two terms appear in the definition of securities for the SEC in all 50 states uh, of the United States. So what's an investment contract? We all know what a note is, so I'm not going to explain that. What is an investment contract? Well, an investment contract was actually defined in 1946 by the U.S. Supreme Court there was a legal case that was brought by the SEC against a company called W.J. Howey's company. And W.J. Howey had an orange grove in Florida, not too far from where my office is located, and it was a place called Howey in the Hills. And in that orange grove, the orange grove operator decided they were going to start selling off interest in the orange grove to private investors with the understanding that they would continue to harvest the oranges and sell them and distribute them on behalf of the investors and then share profits with the investors. And I guess it got a little crazy. At one point, they were, you know, reportedly selling off individual trees. So for some reason, they decided they didn't want to do it anymore. 
uh, either they weren't making enough money for themselves or they wanted to retire or something. So they just kind of said, hey, well, we'll just tell everybody, here's your tree. Come get your oranges. And, of course, the investors didn't like that, and they complained to the regulatory agencies, and the regulatory agencies brought suit. And the outcome of that case was whether or not what they had engaged in constituted an investment contract, which really hadn't been defined by the regulators up until that point. So out of that SEC versus W.J. Howey case came what we call the Howey test. The Howey test is comprised of four things. So if you want to write something down in this call, this is the thing to write down. It's an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit based solely on the efforts of the promoter. So investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit based solely on the efforts of the promoter. All right. So a lot of you were thinking, okay, that makes sense. You're looking for investors who are going to invest money in the common enterprise is whatever you're proposing that they make the investment in. And uh, they are expecting a profit, but it's this fourth prong that is the one that will determine whether what you're selling are securities or joint ventures. So it's that based solely on the efforts of the promoter. So in layman's terms, that really translates to, are you selling active investment opportunities or passive investment opportunities? Well, by the very nature, when you're trying to bring in a number of investors into a deal, if you're going to have you know 30 or 40 investors, you don't want everybody to be actively involved. You'll go crazy and you'll never be able to accomplish anything or agree on anything. It's just going to become a madness. So you're probably in that situation going to be looking for not a joint venture partner. You're going to be looking for passive investors. So by the Howey definition, you've now created that investment contract because you have an investment of money in a common enterprise. There is an expectation of profits and they're based solely on your qualifications and your ability to generate a profit for those investors. So um, when would you use a joint venture? Well, what is a joint venture? Okay, so we've covered what's a security, what's an investment contract. Now, what is a joint venture? Well, a joint venture, this came out of Investopedia, which is a a website that uh, I use frequently when I'm looking up financial terms. Investopedia says, a joint venture is a business arrangement in which two or more parties agree to pool their resources for the purpose of accomplishing a specific task. This task can be a new project or any other business activity. So there you go. Uh, And you can look that up yourself if you like. So what distinguishes a JV from a security? Well, again, in a joint venture, all of the partners have to be actively involved in management of their own resources. So there's, if, if you have four people and they're all going to contribute money uh, to a deal, they all have to stay involved and they all have to stay in control of their own money. They're not handing over the money to one of the partners who's going to handle all the financials and make all the decisions because if they did that, then they would have created a security in the form of an investment contract. So 
doesn't, one of the things that people always think is, well, you know, if I only just have one person, then it must be a joint venture. Well, it's, that's only true if that one person is actively involved in your transaction. So doesn't matter how, you know, the Howey test doesn't say, you know, except that if there's only one person, it's not a security. It doesn't say that. It just says if it meets this definition, if it's an investment contract, if it's an investment contract, it's a security. Now, so what? All right. So now that you know, well, hey, maybe what I'm selling doesn't meet the definition of a security or it doesn't meet the definition of a joint venture. Maybe it is a security. Well, in that case, then what does that mean? All right. So, so what? So it means that you have to now either register the offering of those securities before you start selling them. And that's going through a regulatory pre-approval process and registering your company as if it it's becoming basically a public company, a registered securities offering, a registered company. So, the, you know, with, and that process would be like uh, what Facebook or Google went through when they did their initial public offering. You know, they had to file a pile of paperwork. They had to go back and forth with regulators who looked at all their financials, looked at their business plan, decided that what they were doing was fair and reasonable, and then said, okay, yeah, it's all right. You can go ahead and sell those securities to the general public. The opposite, well, you're not going to do that for real estate. It's never going to make any sense. I mean, if, if you've been doing a lot of syndications and you now want to take a company public, then you might look at doing a Regulation A or A-plus offering. But uh, that's going to be something that you wouldn't consider doing until you're pretty far down the road in your syndication career. So how do you start? How do you start if you don't want to register your company, you're not ready to go to Regulation A, then you would just have to qualify for an exemption from registration. So again, if you're selling securities, you either have to register the offering or qualify for an exemption. All right, so there are exemptions, but none of them are do-nothing exemptions. They all have a specific set of rules that you have to follow. So in order to qualify for an exemption, you first have to know which exemption you're going to follow, pick it, figure out what the rules are, and then stick to those rules. Well, these, are, these exemptions are self-executing because by their very nature, you don't have to submit your documents to a regulatory agency and get pre-approved like you would in a registered offering. You're just going to follow the rules, but it's incumbent on you to make sure that you follow the rules and to document how you follow the rules in case you're ever audited. So think about this like an IRS audit. If an IRS comes to you and wants to look at the deductions that you've claimed, you have to produce documentation to show that you qualify for those deductions. And if you're not able to produce the documentation, then they're going to take those deductions away and you're going to have to pay the tax and some penalties. So this Securities exemptions are very much like that. You have to keep record to show how you follow those rules for that specific exemption. And if you can't produce them, then they're going to take that exemption away. And then they're going to say, well, you sold securities that were not registered and you sold them without a license and you didn't qualify for any exemption. Therefore, what you did is illegal. Now you're in trouble. All right. So... What is the legal structure you would use for a joint venture? Typically, you're going to use a member-managed LLC or a general partnership. And so by its very nature, a member-managed LLC, all of the members are considered to be managing members. 
And in a general partnership, all of the partners are equally responsible for the acts of each other. Now, in the syndication context, you will use joint ventures. You're going to usually use them at the management level of your syndicate. So we typically would create a syndicate that would have an LLC for investors where you're actually selling investment contracts. And then that LLC would be manager managed. It would have its own manager LLC. That manager LLC is probably going to consist of two to four people who are putting the deal together. And that LLC is probably where your joint venture is going to occur. The other place a joint venture might occur is if you have a syndicate and then your syndicate, maybe it's going to raise like eight or $10 million and you don't think you can raise the whole thing or maybe even four or $5 million. So you're going to come in with half the money and you're going to joint venture with another company that might bring in half the money. And then the two of you join forces as a joint venture to acquire the property. Your syndicate acquires part of the ownership interest in the property. The joint venture partner acquires part of the ownership interest in the property. So the difference here is the structure for a JV is member managed. Everybody's actively involved and the, the structure that you would use for your securities offering for your syndicate would be a manager-managed LLC, or you could use a limited partnership, Uh, even some corporations where the shareholders are contributing money and the company is being run by officers officers or directors. Those are, are also securities. So a lot of people try to do things as joint ventures. They will call what they're doing joint ventures so that they don't have to follow these securities laws or think they don't have to, but what they're really looking for are passive investors. So it doesn't matter what you say, it's what you do, because if you're ever audited by the SEC, they're going to look at your documents, they're going to interview your investors or partners, they're going to ask them what kind of a role they had, and if those people can't say that they were actively involved in in control of their own money, then the SEC or the regulator would deem that you were selling securities and that you didn't do it properly. So what does it mean? All right, so, so beyond that, all right, so now you want to qualify for an exemption. What kind of rules might you be looking at? Well, the most typical rules that people use for real estate ventures are uh, Regulation D, Rule 506. This is by far the most common exemption that's out there being used for uh, real estate securities offerings. So in a 506B, the rules are that you can have an unlimited number of accredited investors and up to 35 sophisticated investors. The investors can self-certify that they meet the definition of an accredited investor or a sophisticated investor. And if you want to know those those definitions, you could look them up on Investopedia or you could look them up on the SEC's website as well. so that's, that's the financial qualifications. But then you also, in a 506B, be like boy offering, you cannot offer any securities by any means of general advertising or solicitation. And so in order to prove that, you have to be able to prove that you had a pre-existing relationship with the investors before you made them an offer. And the pre-existing relationship that you have to have is defined as knowing in advance of making them an offer whether they were accredited or sophisticated, and 
allowing some passage of time before you start making offers to them. So you can't meet somebody, pre-qualify them, make them an offer right then. It's not appropriate. That doesn't constitute a pre-existing relationship. The reason for this is that 506B is really designed for private securities offerings to small groups of people that you already know, people who know, like, and trust you already. All right. After the JOBS Act, the standards got changed a little bit. So a new regulation uh, rule came into a place, and that's Regulation D Rule 506C, C like cat. Okay, and that's the one that now allows you to advertise, but you can only sell or make, you can only sell to accredited investors that have been verified. So they can't self-certify anymore. Somebody's got to look at their financial records and make sure that they meet those qualifications. Um, just because we are talking about accredited investors a lot, I will just kind of spit out the uh, um, the definition. Accredited investor is someone who has over a million dollars net worth, including any uh, equity in their primary residence, or they make over $200,000 a year if they're an individual, or $300,000 a year if they're a married couple who files joint income tax returns. So that's an accredited investor. A sophisticated investor is someone who, by themselves or with the help of their investment advisor, has the ability uh, to determine whether the offering is appropriate for their portfolio. And they usually have to have some kind of a business, financial, or investing experience that can demonstrate that they are indeed sophisticated. So it's usually more than somebody with just a job. They have had to have had some training, some other experience, some other real estate investing experience, uh, or some kind of a degree in finance, business, or economics, or something that would make them qualified. All right? So if you were doing a JV, you wouldn't have to worry about any of those rules. All right, there's no registration, you don't have to qualify for an exemption, you just have to make sure everybody's actively involved and that they stay in control of their own money. All right, so there's no disclosures required in a joint venture, everybody takes on their own risk. Just jumping back to the um, 506B exemption again, one of the other requirements is that if you are going to have any sophisticated investors in your deal, you have to provide a disclosure document that describes all the risks of the investment and all the way they could lose their money. That's the thing called a private placement memorandum. All right, so we have, I've talked for about 20 minutes and I like to open up the call to other people who have questions and you can ask any question about a securities matter that you want. While we're waiting for people to get in line to be on the call, they've just talked for a minute about the penalties. So what if you do it wrong? Well, you could be forced to give everybody's money back within 30 days or face prosecution, uh, disgorgement of any financial gains that you have made from the investment. Uh, you could be fined uh, for, you know, daily or, you know, they, they impose fines of like $5,000 a day for every day that you're not in compliance with the law. And in the worst case scenario, you could go to jail, but that's, you're going to have to be pretty egregious, you know, where you're actually stealing people's money before that's likely to happen. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and jump to the first caller. I, I guess it's me. My name's Nicole. Hi, Nicole. Um, I have a question. Um, it's probably fairly um, basic, but if you have, if you're dealing with a very small 
like for a single house, what is the difference between a note and a um, and a loan? So is there a way to set this up for using private money for a single house where it is not a security? Um, is okay. it a loan? Can you do it in your own private name? Is there any way to do this? No, a loan and a note are the exact same thing, all right? A loan is what you get when you issue a promissory note to somebody in exchange for their money. So there's no distinction. If you're giving someone a promissory note in exchange for your money, it's still a note. If you just have a single investor on that property, then you might want to do just a joint venture with that person, but let them keep control of their own money. Don't have them give it to you and put it in your bank account so you can go to Home Depot, you know, and get them to go to Home Depot with you and let them use their own credit card or their own check to pay for that uh, investment. So that's one way is to, to actually do it as a joint venture. Um, or if you're just doing an isolated transaction, there are exemptions in pretty much every state and certainly in the SEC for loans where you, know, you have a short-term loan and there's, you're just doing a one-time thing. All right. It's when your business starts to depend on raising money from private investors, whether they're lenders or whether they're, you know, actively involved in your securities offering. It's when you when your business starts to depend on those private lenders, you are now what's called a serial borrower and you have to comply with securities laws. If you now you have to pick an exemption, you have to decide what financial qualifications your investors are going to have, whether you need to advertise, and then you have to follow those rules, and you probably have to provide some kind of a disclosure document to those investors as well. So you'd be better off to set that up one time and then continue to use that disclosure document again and again and um, just using a different promissory note with each investor and protecting yourself that way. Okay. Yeah, so that's, I use a lot of IRA, people lending money from their IRA, and it's going to be tough to have them do joint ventures with you know, an IRA to a joint venture. Yeah, so you would be better off to set up a single-family securities offering where you, you set up a, a private placement memorandum that explains to all those investors what you're doing with their money and all the different things that could go wrong. The other reason that you want to have this disclosure document is because it will shift the risk of loss from you to the investor. As long as you don't have this disclosure document, you bear all the risk because they are uninformed. Now, when you're selling securities, you have an obligation to make sure that investors have all of the information they need to make informed consent. And so unless you provided them with some kind of a disclosure document explaining the risks of investing in real estate, uh, then they don't have all that information, so all the risk stays with you. You really need to do a securities offering. Okay. And you. you know, if you're doing everything all in one state, if all the properties you're buying and all your investors are all in one state, then you may be able to qualify for a state securities exemption that might be a little less onerous than the federal rules. But we'd have to talk about that and look it look it up and see if there is such a thing in your state. All okay? right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Go on to the next caller. All right. Hey, this is George. Al's I'm calling from San Diego. So um, my question is, um, on a joint venture, if we're using one investor and they are basically putting up the down payment for the acquisition, this is on a multifamily property, 
and will be managing the property. They'll have an active role with making any improvements to the property. Okay. Would this constitute a JV? Yeah, I, w- I like the fact that they're going to have an active role in making improvements to the property. Um, I think that you should be definitely don't set it up as a manager managed LLC because then okay. you would just kind of push it over into the realm of security. So it should be a member managed LLC where they have, a, you know, just as much say as you and everything okay. that happens at that property and that they're okay. staying in control of their, their own destiny. Okay. Right. Now, as far as, as far as the down payment on the, on the loan, how would that work coming from different, you know, if, if, if they're putting up a portion and, and perhaps I might be putting up a portion of it, would, would that would that be sufficient because they are that's controlling? That's certainly helpful. That's certainly helpful. You know, again, everyone stays in control of their own money. Everyone stays actively involved. So you're mm-hmm. involved regardless of whether you're uh, contributing cash or contributing cash and services. They're involved. Mm-hmm. They're contributing cash, but it sounds like they're all also going to be contributing services. That's really what it comes down to. Everybody's okay. pooling all of their resources, cash and services. Okay. Okay. All right. That answers my question. Thank you. Let's go on to the next caller. Hello, yes. Good afternoon. This is Frenchie from LF Partners. How are you? I'm good. Hi, Frenchie. Um, I have a question for you regarding the PPM for a commercial syndication. Um, sort of a compounded question. In in regards to the PPM, uh, the first part is when is the appropriate time to present it? At what stage? And then the other part is, what is the average cost, and do you provide that? Okay. And so let's just flesh out your first question a little bit. What do you mean by present it? Presenting it to investors? Well, yeah, yeah. Like when is the when is the right time? I know they said a lot of times I hear where it's not good to go into a PPM until you've established or a number of investors or have them lined up. And then I I, I think the rule says once you collect this collect the funds. There's a certain amount of time between that point and the time you should file the PPM. Okay. So let's just talk about timing in general. Those are really good questions. I'm sure a lot of people have the same kinds of questions. Sure. All right. So on a commercial property, what I usually say is the time to start drafting your private placement memorandum is when you have a signed purchase and sale agreement. Okay. Someone from your team has physically been to the property. Mm-hmm. And you reviewed the last two or three years of financial statements from the seller. Okay. So, so the soonest you can, and, the, and so that's when you need to hire a securities attorney and start drafting your document. It takes three to four weeks to draft your securities offering documents. And so that process should be occurring during the time that you are doing the rest of your due diligence on the property. In my experience, as a syndicator and and as a purchaser, I also, uh, my husband and I are managers of a syndicated multifamily property. In my experience, you are 90% likely to go forward with a deal when you've done those three things. Been to the property, reviewed the financials, have a signed purchase and sale agreement. Before that, it's a, it's a toss-up whether you're going to go forward or not. If you find other things during due diligence, those are usually going to become deal negotiation points versus deal killers. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, you're, there's not a whole lot of risk in paying up front for your security offering documents and getting that process going. Um, the three to four weeks is, you know, drafting the documents and then going back and forth, making sure that they're accurate and correct, incorporating your comments, and then getting you final. So, ideally, you should be finishing the securities offering documents at the same time you're done with your due diligence on the property so that mm-hmm. you can now have the rest of the period of time you're in escrow to go out and raise the money while the bank is continuing to process the loan. Um, should you start a syndication before you know a single investor? Absolutely not. Okay, You should be meeting investors all the time. Your job before you ever do a syndication is to meet as many people and potential investors and develop pre-existing relationships with them as you possibly can so that when you have that deal under contract and you have those securities offering documents in hand, you can immediately go out to your pre-existing database of investors and say, okay, I've been talking to you about you know, what we're doing for a while and now we have a deal. So I'm, I'm here to tell you that you know, here's the documents. If you're interested in investing, you know, here's the process. Okay. So have them on, okay. on, on call, in other words. Yeah, you need to get develop your database before you become a syndicator. If you don't have that database and you want to be a syndicator, then you're going to have to team with somebody else who has those kinds of relationships with investors. And you're going to have to bring them into your management team so that right. they can help you sell those securities. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. And then as far as the cost to do it, you know, the costs are, are varied. You know, our, we have joint venture agreements that start at, uh, you know, Twenty-five or thirty-five hundred dollars, depending on complexity. Uh, we have um, private placement memorandums in, you know, offering packages that uh, start at around twelve five and go up from there, depending again on the complexity and if it's a single off, you know, single property offering, multiple property offering, and what other services you might need. But uh, our fees are very comprehensive; they're all lump sum. They include forming your, the appropriate entities, drafting the operating agreements for those entities, uh, drafting the private placement memorandum, subscription agreement, and doing the securities notice filings. So in addition to having the right documentation in place and picking an exemption, these exemptions also require that there are some filings that get done telling the SEC that you're selling securities and telling them which exemption you're claiming, and then also uh, some notices that have to be filed in the states where your investors live, telling them that you sold securities to someone in their jurisdiction. So, okay. good question, Frenchie. That was that was very. I'm sure everybody wanted to know that. No, that was great. No, thank you. And just to clarify, the time frame between when you should file. I think I think there's a rule that says you have to file in a certain. Um, time frame, I think, is, is it four days after you collect funds or before you? I'm not sure. So, I, I was trying to find out, and I can't clarify what that is. Yeah, the, those are those uh, filings we're talking about with the securities, the SEC. Right. So you have 15 days from when an investor's money becomes irrevocably committed to your deal to be able to file your notice with the SEC. Okay, and what do you? And can you clarify committed that when they when they say that they are, or you have a, a letter from them or something saying that they are no. they're going to commit it's the funds? When you or? have their funds, okay. So if you have a commercial property under contract, that commitment date is going to come on the day of closing because at that point there's no way you could give their money back. You've okay. used it. Okay. Prior to that, if someone came to you a week before and said, "Ah, oh, you know, I changed my mind. I'd like to get my money back out of the deal." 
you know, you're not going to want to force them to stay in your deal. You're going to find another investor to take their place. Sure, without right? a penalty, of course, yeah. <laughs> sure. So you're going to you're going to let them, you know, let them out. You know, sure. people's situations change. You want to be understanding, and plus, maybe they'll invest with you in a future deal. So, I know. True. Yeah. So that's that's 15 days, and then in the state securities notices, we have to file the notices within 15 days of when you bring in your first investor from that state. So that's either going to happen on the date that you close on the property, or if you're continuing to raise money after the property has closed, then it would start immediately on the date that they gave you the money, because once you've closed on the property, you will be able to immediately deploy those funds uh, if you're continuing to raise money. Okay, excellent. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, we're going to go on to the next question. State your name and your question. Hi, Kim. My name is Doug in Tacoma, Washington, and I serve as a, a, a private lender, but I quickly grew beyond my ability to fund deals with my my own money, and my list of uh, projects or people that were contacting me for money uh, grew into the multiple millions. So my focus has been on establishing connections to those uh, organizations that uh, lend money to both real estate and business uh, projects and would be interested in uh, partnering with an equity position. So my question is, I'm now serving primarily as a, f- a finder or introducer, and I'm wondering if there's anything I need to do if I'm strictly the connector, introducing someone with the money to someone who needs the money. Okay, well, that's a really good question, Doug. So the question is really, you know, can you receive a finder's fee and are there any issues that you should be aware of with respect to that? And um, the answer is yes, there are some issues. Uh, If you're referring private investors to somebody's deal, you can't be paid a commission for finding those investors unless you have a securities license. You know, it's the same thing as a real estate broker, right? If if I want to sell or, or, or for sale by owner, if I want to sell my own house, I can sell my house. I don't have to have a real estate broker's license, right? But if I want to sell my neighbor's house and get paid a commission for doing it, I'm required to have a real estate broker's license in order to be able to collect a commission on doing that. If I wanted to do it for free, nobody cares, right? So it's when you want to get paid and if you're trying to get paid something uh, related to the amount of money that you're raising, then you're earning commission and you can't do that unless you have a securities license. So the risk of doing that and getting paid for referring private investors to deals is that you would get charged with selling unlicensed securities and, and uh, unregistered securities and selling securities without a license. And, and also you would maintain some liability in that those investors could say, hey, I thought this guy was my broker and he told me this was a good deal, and I invested in it, and it went bad, and now they could sue you. So we're, then that's for referring private investors. The other thing is that if you're who's, whoever's deal you're referring those people to, they could get in trouble for having, you know, if they pay you or if you're somehow compensated by them in a way that looks like a commission, then uh, you could get in trouble because they would lose their exemption as well. All right. But as far as institutional investors go, right, if you're referring other institutions, other people who are holding themselves out to be lenders or other joint venture partners, then the laws are a little looser there. 
right, because it's a joint venture or because it's an institutional lender, they're not going to look at you as selling securities in order to put individual investors into a deal. So you might be able to take some kind of a fee for that. Okay, and that's the example that it's probably dealing with most rather than the individual not going to my next-door neighbor and saying, hey, I found a good deal. You might be interested in putting your money in. I'm not soliciting. It's generally they've come to me in some way and said, yes, I'm interested in investing. But, yeah, generally I'm staying away from that individual and dealing yeah. primarily with institutions or hard money uh, lenders uh, that also take equity positions on certain kinds of deals and, and introducing that way. And the yeah, I, I don't think that you have much of a problem, you know, as much of a problem doing it that way. You'd still want to be cautious, but, uh, you, you know, stay away from referring individuals to a deal and expecting to get paid for it, uh, you know, because it can just cause a lot of problems for everybody. All right? And I'm not providing advice. I'm just saying, based on the criteria that you've said, you might want to take a look at this deal. Um, it, it seems to fit your criteria. Take a look. Yeah, right. And you want to be careful of uh, actually, you know, uh, pitching the deal, right? So, yeah. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Thank Excellent, you so much. Jack. Okay. Hey, we've got a couple more callers on the on the line, and I do I will get to you, but I just want to say, in case anybody has to drop off, I know some of you are on your lunch hour. Um, if you want to hear more about us, you can go to our website at uh, syndicationattorneys.com and you can uh, email me at kim at syndicationattorneys.com or you can email my law clerk, Charlene, at syndicationattorneys.com if you'd like to schedule an appointment. Um, you can call me at 904-584-4055. Um, but so, or you can just go directly to our website and there's a button you can uh, click on to schedule an appointment with an attorney. All right, so um, we'll go on to the next couple of callers and then we'll wrap up. Hi, Kim. Uh, this is Tricia Hausman over in Orlando, Florida, and I just want to say thank you for providing this service. Uh, we know some people in common over at IFRAC. I'm a real estate instructor as well as a broker. Yeah, yeah so... Super, super format. I want to be a part of more. Um, I've got some some people that I'm bringing together and want to clarify on joint venture when they are managing in control of their own money. Does that mean as they we put the LLC together, the LLP together, and it's member managed, I got that, um, in control of their own money. So is is it going to function like an escrow where money comes in, it's accounted for, and each member needs to sign off on the check, or they just authorize approval? Can you clarify that? Well, you might have a joint bank account that everybody's a signer on, okay, is one way to do it, and nobody takes any money out until everybody agrees. Um, you know, and again, you, you know, you get too many people in a joint venture, it's not going to work. You know, it's really a joint venture is going to be good for three or four people at most. And if you have many, any more than that, you're not going to be able to call it a joint venture. You're going to have to structure it as a security and follow securities laws because you know, you'll just never be able to do what you need to accomplish having to get consents and approvals and everybody writing checks. You know, the, I, the best way to protect yourself would be don't set up a joint bank account you know, have a meeting and say, okay, here's how much money we need. Everybody, you know, send in your check for, you know, $50,000. It's just going to be hard to collect. It's going to be hard to get a hold of people. And, you know, you're not going to want to use that 
is what you truly should be doing are passive investments. And, you know, people that have other jobs and don't know a thing about what you're doing, they don't want to be joint venture partners. They don't want that responsibility. They want to be a passive investor. So you're doing them a disservice, or you could be doing them a disservice by trying to set it up and forcing them to stay actively involved in something that they don't know anything about when you're the one that's invested all the time, effort, and money to learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, that essentially answers it, and I'm going to be following up with you on on various different projects to know which is the best method. So I appreciate your time. And very good. Well, thanks, Tricia. All right. So that wraps up our call for today. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for joining. And glad we didn't have a snafu this time like we did last time. Hopefully we'll have it together from now on. We are getting more and more technologically advanced as we go. Um, but I uh, appreciate all of you reading our newsletters and uh, hopping on the calls. I think this is valuable for everybody. And uh, we look forward to working with you or talking to you more in the future. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Raise Private Money Legally podcast with your host, securities attorney, Kim Lisa Taylor. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Syndication Attorneys PLLC is a law firm that provides syndication and fund documents, offers commercial real estate transactional services, and creates professionally designed investor marketing materials for capital raising clients nationwide. Visit syndicationattorneys.com to schedule an appointment and sign up to get a copy of our latest book, How to Raise Capital for Real Estate Legally, the only guide you need to raise private money legally for real estate funds and syndications.